Attention mystery thriller readers, have we got a giveaway for you. How about the 10 best mysteries and thrillers of the year so far, given to one lucky Book Riot reader or podcast listener? The prize pack includes Miracle Creek by Angie Kim, The Lost Man by Jane Harper, American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson, and more. Just go to bookriot.com slash bestmysteries to enter to win. And don't forget to lock all the doors and leave your lights on. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Kidlet These Days, a Book Riot podcast. Kidlet These Days is your Kidlet connoisseurs, pairing the best of children's literature with what's going on in the world today. I'm Karina Yan Glazer alongside Matthew Winner, and we are here to have conversations that create opportunities for parents, grandparents, teachers, librarians, and all who love children's books to engage in the world through literature in a deeper and broader way. We are recording on August 22nd, 2019. Well, today we are so excited to have two special guests with us. Debbie Reese and Jean Mendoza have adapted Roxanne Dunbar-Otiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, which you have heard Matthew and I talk about a lot on this podcast already. (laughs) And they have adapted that book into an edition for young people geared at ages 12 and up. This book is published by Beacon Press and was released in July, and I have to say that I have become aware of Debbie Reese over the past few years from her blog, American Indians in Children's Literature, and it is just an amazing resource, and I feel like I've learned so much about gaps in my understanding of Indigenous peoples and um, sort of how books that I've read as a child or books that I've been exposed to when I was younger, how a lot of them were problematic when addressing um, Native people. And I feel like I really go to that blog to get her thoughts about books that are coming out, books that have been published in the past, just to make sure that when I'm recommending books and I'm not just falling into sort of old patterns of just recommending books that I might have loved as a child and not reread and not really realize that there's problematic content. Now, Matthew, I know that you're really good friends with Debbie and you have um, a whole history with her and I know that you've learned from her as well. And I'm yeah. just so excited that she's on this podcast with us. Yeah, I've had her on the children's book podcast yes. in the past um, to talk about the the name change of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Book Award yes. or mm-hmm. Legacy to the Children's Legacy Award um, to recommend um, books by and centering Indigenous voices, um, and I would also add to it that both um, Dr. Debbie Reese and Jean Mendoza um, are active on Twitter, and I have a lot of learning from their threads and what they retweet. Like even just this week uh, that we're recording, um, the Florida Department of Education shared um, Commissioner Richard uh, Corcoran's um, new back-to-school reading list. Um, and, oh my and gosh. it was unfortunately <laughs> full of lots and lots of problematic books. Yes. But we'll link to this Twitter thread in the show notes because the way that um, Debbie goes through 
and sort of challenges or pushes against the Florida Department of Education to ask if they've thought critically about the books on their list. And then she calls some of those books out specifically, I think really demonstrates what a great teacher she is. And Jean is the same way. They they are teachers. Um, their novel um, for children or for young people um, has the voice of a teacher. And I think that these two women uh, really embody that in their work at large. They're teaching, they're helping to educate, they're helping to lead us forward. This episode of Kid Lit These Days is sponsored by All the Impossible Things by Lindsay Lackey and Macmillan Children's. A bit of magic, a sprinkling of adventure, and a whole lot of heart collide in this extraordinary story of a girl navigating the foster care system in search of where she belongs. Catherine Applegate, the best-selling author of The One and Only Ivan, calls all the impossible things wise and wondrous. The story centers on a character named Red who has power over the wind. Whenever she gets upset, the wind picks up, and moving from family to family keeps her skies stormy. Red's newest family, the Grooves, fit like a puzzle piece into her heart, and just as she's getting settled, a fresh storm rolls in. Her mother. Now, Red must overcome her own tornadoes and find the family she needs. With love, anything is possible. This sounds to me like the kind of book that's perfect for any kind of weather. All the Impossible Things is available now wherever books are sold. Okay, so why don't I introduce all of you to Debbie and Jean. Debbie Reese is an educator and founder of American Indians and Children's Literature, and she is tribally enrolled as Nambe Pueblo, a federally recognized tribe. She grew up on the Nambe's reservation. She holds a PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of Illinois. Jean Mendoza is a curriculum specialist focusing on the representation of indigenous peoples in children's and young adult literature. She holds a PhD in curriculum and instruction and a master's of education in early childhood education from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. We invited them on to talk about an indigenous people's history of the United States for young people, written by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and adapted by Jean Mendoza and Debbie Reese. And before turning over to the interview, I want to read the final paragraph of this book, which I think will bring everything together and pull you into context. It reads, Pipeline construction, mining, and other forms of exploitation are sure to continue into the 21st century. Native people will persist in protecting their communities, their lands, their water, their sacred sites, and the wider world from the risks Knowing how to be in that future world is your challenge. Please welcome Dr. Debbie Reese and Dr. Jean Mendoza. Well, we are so excited to welcome Debbie Reese and Jean Mendoza to Kidlit these days, here joining us to talk about an indigenous people's history of the United States for young people. Welcome, Debbie. Welcome, Jean. Thank you, Matthew, for bringing us on. We're yeah. so excited to have you. Um, before we get started, Jean, would you mind introducing yourself to those listening? Okay. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, I am a suburban white lady. I've been married uh, for 37 years to Durango Mendoza, who is a Muscogee Creek um, 
artist and writer. Um, he was a social worker also for many years. Um, we have four children and six grandchildren. Wonderful. What a life. And Debbie, would you mind introducing yourself to, to others that might not have met you yet? Sure. I'm Debbie Reese, tribally enrolled at Nambe Pueblo in northern New Mexico, or the place currently known as northern New Mexico, as I've come to, to speak. Um, I am the founder of American Indians in Children's Literature. I created that blog so I could turn all the research that I do as an academic into something that teachers and parents and librarians can get access to. That's wonderful. Well, we're so grateful to have you both here. I believe that Karina and I have each listened to the audiobook of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, the book that Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz wrote uh, with an adult audience in mind. Karina, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Ah, nice. That solid 10 hours of listening that just <laughs> yes. stripped me of just all of my knowledge, or realizing, I suppose, all of the, the gaps in my knowledge. So we're so grateful to be able to talk to each of you because of this resource uh, you've made for young people. So why don't I start off by asking, how did each of you become involved in working on an Indigenous people's history of the United States for young people? Well, I was, um, I got an email from Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz asking me if I was interested in doing this adaptation. Um, she told me a little bit about her work with Beacon, and I thought, well, maybe, but only if Jean Mendoza can do it with me, because Jean and I have worked together a lot and written together, and this I knew would be a major undertaking. So I, I said I would do it only if Jean could do it with me, and Beacon said yes. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that. Uh, to hear one that that <laughs> I did not realize that you two worked together and had such a close relationship, but also to to know that Roxanne sought you out, um, knowing that 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 you both would be the the right ones to bring this to youth. That's wonderful. So Matthew and I have talked about this book a lot in our podcast, and after. I had listened to it on audiobook, and Matthew was almost done with it. We were just talking about how we had we needed time to process all the information because it's just so much. And then I think for both of us, it really made us both aware of the huge gaps in our education of U.S. history. Um, and so we were curious, when you were working together, what was your approach to writing this text in consideration of those readers who may also have had similar education gaps? And also, what about for Indigenous students who may be more aware of their own family or tribe's history? We wanted it to be linear, so the trajectory is easy to follow. Um, what was it like before the invasion, as far as we can know that? What happened next in X part of the continent? Um, and we tried to make sure that readers had all the context that they would need um, in order to understand new concepts and understand events they hadn't heard of before, um, or just to get a new perspective on some well-known events. Um, so that's kind of one of the, the main thing, I guess, that we brought to it is this idea of how we needed to structure it so that it mm -hmm. could fill those gaps in. 
it, it took us three years to do this. And I, I do mean three years of working almost every day for about five hours. Um, we, we numbered every paragraph in the original book, read all of it over and over and started cutting and pasting and moving and rewriting and creating new content. So it was a massive undertaking of two uh, PhDs who are moms and <laughs> who are former assistant professors and teachers. Yes. <laughs> to bring all of that together to create something that we thought would be useful to teachers in the classroom or to teenagers who are reading it on their own. The, um, the other part of your question, Karina, where you, where you asked about what Native youth might take from the book, we, we had our kids in mind every minute that we worked on the book. Hmm. We, wanted, we wanted the history not to hurt them, but to affirm them, to show their res the resistance of their ancestors and their grandparents through time um, in ways that would affirm and lift their spirits rather than take them down. And that was hard because history is what it is, but we are still here. And there is a reason for that. And we wanted to bring that into the book, too. I found it really powerful that, uh, Jean, you were mentioning earlier about um, the scope and sequence of this book, but also the way you were trying to engage your readers to help connect all of this to what's going on now. And in such a timely way, you, you close the book as well with this chapter called Water is Life, uh, where you talk about Standing Rock. And I found that the, the way you use the structure of that chapter and everything that has come before it to help your readers analyze other events was particularly powerful. I really thought in all of this remixing of the original book that you did and adding on that, that, that the way you engaged your readers and kept them centered was, was something I found really strong about this book. And I, I think just as an educator, I wanted to say thank you because there's a lot of educators that were not, were not sure where to go or how to do this. What are the right, first steps and this resource is not only exceptional but you're providing that that framework to help all of us move forward so thank you both for that you're most welcome i'm glad that worked for you because we put a lot of thought into that chapter and especially into how to pull in the themes that had been uh, apparent and you know throughout the rest of the book throughout the rest of the history how those became um they were evident in virtually everything that happened with Standing Rock, too. You know, all of the um, uh, difficult stuff, the, the racism, the militarized response to um, Native people asserting themselves, um, but also Native people's resistance and, and resilience and determination to uh, protect their, their homelands and, and the water. Well, so I'm, I'm glad it came through. It was fantastic. And Debbie and I have been talking here and there about this book when I first realized that she was working on it back a podcast ago, right, Debbie? Yeah. <laughs> but, but one thing you had commented to me as I was saying that I was reading the original, listening to the audiobook of the original, was that um, you were curious about what they will look like sort of hand in hand, how one translates to the other. And... I found in particular the way that you incorporated all of these uh, historical photos and documents throughout the text for 
the young people's edition to be particularly affecting. Was this something that you had in mind from the start as you were approaching doing this adaptation? Or were there any photos or documents that were maybe leading your writing as you were going into uh, considering how to structure this book? Um, no, I don't think that we had any particular photos in mind. Um, I think we always had our kids' photos all around us. And so that was a guiding light for us as we as we um, developed the material. Um, I also want to say that this is the first time that Jean and I are talking together about the book to <laughs> yeah, anybody. This that. is our, you guys have the very first oh, I love it. interview about <laughs> the book. The, the launch is on Saturday in Chicago. Well, thanks for that exclusive, and it's so great to have you both. I mean, the the book so clearly feels like it's of one mind, one voice coming and sharing it, and it's just neat to hear you talking and picking up each of the different parts of the conversation. It's clear that um, however you chose to approach this writing, that you found a unified voice to say it, to share it. That might be something that has come from your experience writing together, or it... it might just be that you have a good sense of editing, but um, it really, I really enjoyed the voice in this in particular. You know, one of the things that we we brought to it is that we are teachers and we know visuals matter. Yeah. And so, as we were working through it, we say, "Oh, we could put this here, or we could put that there, and and uh, we need a map right here." <laughs> <laughs> well, it. I think that is it adds so much to that edition, and I think. You know, even those of us who have read the original version written for adults, I think having this additional resource with all of the photos and the documents that you've so carefully sifted through and chosen for this book is, is really important for us to look at as well in addition to the other book. Well, I was thinking about, I've been thinking about, um, this a lot, and I know Matthew has as well as educators all across the country. But you know, as as a parent and as a former teacher and as someone who writes children's books, I think a lot about the information that we're giving to children, and you know, so much of what we're passing along to our own kids is information that we had as children. And so all that misinformation that I was exposed to as a child and learning about U.S. history, um, I know that there are those gaps in my, in my education. And then when I was reading an Indigenous People's History of the United States and and then your adaptation in Indigenous People's History of the United States for young people, it made me feel very strongly that... Um, not only did I have to sort of retrain my brain and what I learned about U.S. history, but also make sure that my children who are ages 9 and 11 um, start off their knowledge being um, not having all of that baggage and all, mis all that misinformation. And so I handed them your book and I said, you must read this this summer because we need to talk about it. And I was wondering... Um, for um, both of you, Jean and Debbie, what are the barriers you perceive in getting this information to children? And do you have any solutions that you would consider for overcoming these barriers? 
I think one of the barriers is going to be the mindset that feels threatened by anything that calls into question the goodness and rightness of how the country was founded and how it grew, you know, kind of the um, love it or leave it mentality. Um, I think to the extent that this is present in people making decisions about buying and sharing the book, it could be a barrier. But um, Deb, you were talking earlier today when we were chatting about this, about how to handle that. Um, I think when we were talking earlier, I was I was thinking about the barriers, and one is obviously testing. So much testing going on in schools that there's not a whole lot of time for teachers to bring in something that's not part of the curriculum that's handed to them by the district. So they have to make space for it, which will be hard. So time is a barrier, but also just that 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 American quote unquote American <laughs> resistance to looking honestly at history and. Um, we're seeing a lot of that right now with a response by uh, certain political segments of society to the 1619 project that the New York Times published. So there's absolutely going to be resistance to the book. Um, and we hope that by making this book available, not just to teachers and kids, but also it can be used by um, editors at publishing houses, by people who are writing children's books, to revisit what they have on their plate right now, um, incorporating some of the material in there so that we create this cycle and this momentum of material that kind of pushes back on that misinformation at every level. Um, so I guess I'm thinking wildly in, in, in a certain sense, um, in a, I don't want to say visionary, but that that thinking very hard about how we can in, interrupt the cycles of, of that misin, misinformation that perpetuates all of society. That's right. Disrupting those cycles was exactly the, the term that came to my mind, too. And taking taking those people that that feel that this is important. How do you say that about American history, Deb? I heard you laughing about that a little bit. The... Um, it's 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 time it's time that we that we work to write this that we work to write our direction our path um and this is this is a step uh, and this is this is something that that we can have access to we can pr help provide access to through our libraries through our classrooms and 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 by handing the book to children and to our colleagues so uh to bring us from sort of a final question and then into talking about books, uh, many of our listeners work with children. I think we've talked about that before when we were inviting you on. We have a lot of teachers, a lot of librarians that listen, and, and those individuals are just starting the school year. So while an Indigenous people's history of the United States for young people is primarily written for teens and tweens, um, I know that there are conversations around Indigenous history and acknowledgement that can certainly be happening in lower grades. So I wonder if, if we can ask you both, what takeaways or messages do you think are the most important ones to communicate or center? Uh, and we can start with our youngest when we're considering how we're teaching preschool and kindergarten students and then move on to second and third and fourth and above. But do you mind starting us off with some thoughts for uh, directly for those teachers of early childhood? I think that teachers can read it no matter what age they they teach, and it'll help them fill in those, those gaps that we've talked about um, and allow them to 
know what kind of resources to look for, to recognize some of the stereotypes and so on that are and mistakes that are in some of the books that get commonly shared with, um, you know, preschoolers and kindergartners and, and all the way up, really. So I think, you know, reading the book themselves and then maybe, you know, doing some of the to-do activities in it and so on could be really helpful. I think that teachers um, have to stop using the word was <laughs> when they're talking about Native Americans or were. Um, they have mm. to use present tense verbs. We are still here. Um, they can pick up a book. Uh, and I, uh, Cynthia Lytic Smith's Jingle Nancer is the one I'm always promoting because people in Matt, Matt I love Matt, it. I'm smiling. <laughs> you totally do. <laughs> because you can say this book is by a native writer. Her name is Cynthia Lytic Smith. Her nation is Muscogee Creek. Here is their website. So using these present tense verbs with young children, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Those present tense verbs. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for this book and for bringing conversation to us about it and um, really for affirming the work that teachers can do. Uh, Debbie, I've said it to others before and to you directly before, but uh, if it weren't for the work that you are doing uh, publicly through Twitter and also through your blog, um, I don't think my eyes would be as attuned to looking for and noticing and recognizing those moments when things feel off, when things feel wrong, when things feel portrayed incorrectly. And it's, it's, it's because of uh, just continuing to, to look and to question um, that that's really helped me. And you have helped show the way for me. You continue to be someone um, who helps uh, model that for me. And so I appreciate the work that, that you and Jean have done and and continue to do both in this book and at large because um, many of us are watching, many of us are learning, and, and you in so many ways are teaching us and helping and supporting us as well. You know, I, I, I'm going to jump in right here and say that one of my Twitter threads was about land acknowledgments, and that is becoming very popular in the United States. It has been popular in Canada for a while, yeah. and that's the the idea that you, Matthew, standing where you are at this moment, when you're opening a meeting, you will say, I want to acknowledge that this is the land of so-and-so Native people. And um, it's an interesting idea that has a lot of potential, but the way that people are doing it is they kind of write a script and they read the script and then they set it down and move on. Um, so if any of your listeners to the podcast are in school districts that are trying to develop that, because in Canada, kids recite land acknowledgments like the Pledge of Allegiance. It's meaningless and empty. So it's an interesting idea, but you have to turn it into an action item rather than something that's recited or delivered in a solemn or sacred way. It's important to acknowledge the land, but it's important to say, now, whose land was this and where are those people today? And is there a children's book about them that we can read? And if there's not, can I write to Scholastic and say, hey, Scholastic, we need a book about XYZ? 
That's wonderful mm-hmm. to say that. And it, it reminds me actually of an episode of the unreserved podcast from CBC. Um, that, that, uh, was where I first learned about land acknowledgement. So I'll make sure that I link to that in the show notes for those that might not have heard about land acknowledgement before. So to pair that with your message, I think will serve really well. Thank you for that. Okay, before we get into book talks, let me first share that Kidlit These Days is sponsored today by Astro Girl by Ken Wilson Max from Candlewick Press. This STEM-friendly picture book about a girl, her dreams of space flight, and someone she deeply looks up to is one that is sure to ignite your heart. Here's a little about the story. Astrid is a young girl of color who has loved the stars in space for as long as she can remember. I want to be an astronaut, she says to everyone who will listen. And while her mama is away, Astrid and her papa have fun acting out the challenges an astronaut faces on a space mission, like being in zero gravity, eating food from a kind of tube, and doing science experiments with the help of cookie sheets. When at last it's time to meet mama at the airbase, Astrid wears her favorite space t-shirt to greet her. Where exactly has her mama been? Astro Girl is perfect for kids interested in all things space and who love to adventure with those nurturing figures in their lives. You know who you are, and you know you love these special kinds of books together. Watch for Astro Girl by Ken Wilson Max from Candlewick Press. Um, so <laughs> this is the time that Karina and I always are, are looking at our watches cause we, we're always running over, but I have to say proudly, we're doing great on time. And I know you brought a lot of books to share. So Debbie, Jean, let's go for it. I would love if you would not mind sharing some of these books that, that you have brought to share with us for, um, that those, those younger children that we talked about, the ones in elementary and middle school that you think are ones that, um, teachers should be paying attention to seeking out and reading themselves as well. Can I, can I read a little piece from the book before we do that? I would love that. Ooh, please do. Okay. In the back of the book, we have a section called Some Books We Recommend. It starts out, by now you have probably read many picture books, chapter books, and novels that have native characters or themes, books like Island of the Blue Dolphins or Little House on the Prairie. Many of them, however, are by non-native writers and illustrators. They contain errors, bias, and stereotypes, and they're set in the past. Though they may be award-winning or classics, the information in them is wrong, and we're pleased when teachers and librarians decide to set them aside and use books by native writers instead. Okay, Jean, go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The first thing I want to talk about is um, Fall in Line, Holden, um, by Daniel Vandiver, and he is Navajo. It was published in 2017 by Selena Bookshelf. And a thing that I love about it um, is that it's about how a child's creative, active mind makes adjustments to fit expectations, even in a relatively benign place. And I say that because uh, I was thinking in terms of um, the book, uh, our our book, the adaptation, um, talks a lot about boarding schools, Indian boarding schools, and what a disaster they were for Native families and communities, and um, how how cruel and horrible it was to have to go to school there. This little book uh, is good for preschoolers and partners. Um, it, it shows that there's regimentation in the school, but it's also kind of a hopeful message what's, you know, um, can be for a, an active, creative child. 
Um, and it's fun to repeat the words fall in line, Holden, and also to see what's going on in Holden's mind throughout the book. Anything else I should say about a deadline? No, I think that's I think that's fine. The book I want to start out with is Salty Pie, A Choctaw Journey from Darkness into Light by Tim Tingle. He's Choctaw, and the illustrator for his book is Karen Clarkson, who is also Choctaw. One of the things that we hit on really hard in the book was that most um, uh, teaching materials and, and books use the word tribe, but we were nations before the United States was a nation. And in Tim Tingle's books, he brings that forth all the time. In in his um, uh, How I Became a Ghost, which is a middle grade novel, the chapter one title has the word nation in it, Choctaw Nation. So in here in Salty Pie, he's got nationhood in the notes in the back of the book so that teachers can understand some of that. He says, he says that long before Europeans arrived, they had a Choctaw national government, they selected local and national leaders, and that women were regarded as equals. Um, so we're trying to do that with our book, and we like to see that in children's books, and Salty Pie has that, and it's also got a piece in it about boarding schools, so it fits nicely as a different kind of telling of boarding schools than um, Fall in Line Holden, because uh, kids in many tribes, in all tribes, were sent to boarding schools. This is a Choctaw story about that. Awesome. That was one that I don't know. I like this. Oh. is so exciting when I hear about books that I'm like, I'm making a note for myself to put it on hold because I do not know that one. It starts with a little boy getting bit on the butt by a bee. Oh, <laughs> that's a solid opening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jean, what do you have next? Okay, my next one would be um, a, um, I'm changing the order that we talked about, Deb. I want to talk about The Sockeye Mother um, by Brett D. Hewson. Uh, who is um, Yitshan. It's illustrated by Natasha Donovan, who's of the Métis Nation uh, in, Brit in British Columbia. It's published in 2017 by Highwater Press. Um, and in Chapter 10, uh, our adaptation talks briefly about the fish inns of the 1970s. And probably the most important fish for the indigenous people of the West Coast is the salmon. And you can look to this little book. It's an informational book with beautiful illustrations. Um, you can look to it to find out more about the sockeye salmon, and students can enjoy the the illustrations and the way that it's presented. It's it's really quite beautiful. It's exceptionally beautiful. Yeah, those illustrations. Wow. Oh, you've seen that one? I have seen that one. Yeah, it's made a couple lists if I remember right. Terrific. Yeah. yeah. And also, yeah. I, I should add that there's a follow up uh, called the Grizzly Mother that's coming out in September. Oh, excellent. I'll make sure I put that one on hold. I don't know about that. I think I reviewed that one, so you can look for it on my blog. And, and what I what I yeah. like about those two books is that there's no uh, talking animals kind of stuff. This is like nonfiction at its best. <laughs> All right. It's a solid endorsement. All right, let's keep going. Okay, next on my list is We Are Grateful by You Know Who, Tracy Sorrell, illustrated by Fran Lesek, and uh, Tracy is Cherokee. Um, one of the things that's nice about talking about her book now is that it came out in 2018, and since then, all the awards were given out, and um, I think this is the first that we have a native-authored book that won honors in across several different book awards. So she got the Cybert Honor, the Orbis Pictus Honor, and the Boston Globe Hornbook Honor Award for We Are Grateful. The illustrations are gorgeous, and there's Cherokee language throughout. 
our book talks about language and revitalization of language. And so it's lovely to see so much of that in here um, in Tracy's book. So we hope that people will pick that up and, and they should read. We, we do talk a lot about the Cherokee people in our adaptation of Indigenous People's History. And having that as a solid background before reading books like Tracy's shows you all the fine details that an average reader won't find because I don't have the background to spot those details. And that book, because it incorporates so much Cherokee, um, is one that I feel like as a as a reader reading to a class of children, I made sure that I was intentional about practicing those pronunciations so that my students would also be hearing it pronounced the right way. And they have a great uh, guide for that on their website as well. But, and it's an audiobook now. Oh, oh, I didn't realize they've adapted it as a full audiobook. That's wonderful. Yes. I was going to say to have my children walking around saying Ojali Haliga was such a neat thing. Um, and that was a that was something that Tracy did in writing this book and making that connection to the word and to the people. I thought that was beautiful. I, but really, I should stop gushing over every single one of your books. I need Gush to... away. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry, Jean. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just saying we like that. Um, shall I go ahead with my please, next book? Please do. Okay. Okay, my next one is an older book. It was published in 2000. It's called The Good Luck Cat, and it's by Joy Harjo, who is Muskogee Creek, illustrated by Paul C. Lee. It's been a favorite of mine for a long time um, because it's a good little contemporary story about a native girl and her cat. It has dramatic tension and a positive resolution, and the illustrations are just delightful. And the other reason I like it is because the author, Joy Harjo, is on um, the four further reading lists that we have in the back of the adaptation on our list of indigenous women to learn more about. And the book is out of print right now. Uh, you can get it in libraries, but we hope that it's going to be reissued now because she is has become the first Native woman to be named Poet Laureate of the United States. That's Joy Harjo. That that was that was something that <laughs> Debbie, your post on Joy uh, Joy Harjo's recognition or or being named. Um, sent me down a wonderful rabbit hole of reading poetry. And that it was, I, I, I so much or so often read picture books in middle grade, but to be reading work for adult and just really falling in love with the way that she writes was a special treat. You know what? You have to get her music CDs. Yeah. She plays the saxophone and does uh, spoken word poetry to some of her sax music. It is astonishingly gorgeous. I am making a note of it right now. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> ah, wow. All right. Well, Debbie, what do you have? Okay. This one is coming out. Um, later this year, it's called Fry Bread by Seminole writer, he's a lawyer, Kevin Noble Maillard, and it's illustrated by Juana Martinez, coming from Roaring Book Press. And it's about fry bread, and um, fry bread is uh, something that we Native people look upon with great joy or great disdain. It is something that was born of a rations period when Native people were put on reservations and um, provided food items by the U.S. government, basically flour and grease. So what are you going to do? <laughs> You're going to turn what you have into something that your family can eat. So 
fry bread is from the dark periods of history and people um, cook it on special occasions and enjoy it very much. And so it's really nice to see this as a picture book that's honest about it. Um, it doesn't, it's not just a celebratory um, picture book about a food. It has the history of it. So there's on, on one page, um, Kevin writes, fry bread is history, the long walk, the stolen land. Strangers in our own world with unknown food, we made new recipes from what we had. And in his author's note, he talks about the Navajo people, the Diné people, um, being the first to make fry bread over 150 years ago. Um, our adaptation has information about their long walk in 1868. We include maps that show the routes by which 8,000 Diné people walked about 400 miles from their homelands to a military concentration camp. So that book, I think, has a lot of resonance for all of us particularly right now when we see what's going on with our border and the ways that the current administration is treating families. The way Kevin handles the story in these moments, each page turn is a moment, I found so beautiful. Oh, and the, the end, that's the one with the end papers. that are Yes. Oh, yes, I Lord, love those end papers. Beautiful end papers with just all of the tribe's names. So beautiful. You know, when, when, when I when I saw the end papers, I like I zoomed in, zoomed in. <laughs> I said, Yeah, there we are. And it's you know, it's that concept of a mirror, it just makes my heart sore. And I looked at it and I said, There's that there's Nambe right there and then I, I put that in my first look at the book mm. and I used the accent over the letter E and Juana noticed that I had done that and she wrote uh, they wrote to me and said, We put the accent on the E after we saw your blog post. So you're you know. kidding. You never no, know. Lovely. You never right. know who's watching. That's wonderful. Right. Ah, what a great book. Yeah, I've noticed also there's been a lot of talk lately about food sovereignty, and I saw a TED talk about that, um, like native, native foods and food sovereignty, and yeah, it really opened my eyes to where it originated, and then reading your book, learn more about that, and now this new book, picture book coming out. It's really great to have that information out there. Wonderful. Well, let's see. We we have actually, according to my count, you you might each still have a book or two saved. Is that true? Yep. Do we have time? Can we do one one more from each of you? Sure. Go ahead, Jean. Okay. Uh, my next one is Bow Wow Pow Wow by Brenda J. Child. She's Red Lake Ojibwe, and she has written several books for adults. Um, and um, this one is a little different from those. It's illustrated by Jonathan Thunder, who's also Red Lake Ojibwe, published in 2018, Minnesota Historical Society. Um, this is kind of a, a girl and her dog story in a way, um, but centered on powwows and um, treating uh, the powwow as a normal piece of life for this, this child, but also a very special um, bit of life. And it's a, a bit of fantasy as well. Um, very gentle, very very pleasant to read, but also just packed full of information. And a non-native child can read it and come away with a better understanding of what happens at powwows, so that they they don't um, oh, end up with a lot of stereotypes or, or gaps in their knowledge. But um, for a native child, first I should say, not all nations have powwows, um, but most people have, everybody's got some kind of celebration, some kind of coming together. Um, and for those uh, 
readers who are from nations that do have powwows, this would be an affirmation of that kind of event as something that is is um, good and interesting and um, and you can bring your dog to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the illustrations in this book are wild and beautiful. Yeah. And it felt like I, the the book itself felt so outside of my my own experience. It felt I, sort of like the feeling when I uh, read a book that's a, a foreign press book, something from, from Europe that just feels like, oh, this is not the way I'm used to reading stories. And I really yeah. love that. I really felt like it 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 brought the reader to a new place um and did it in such a such a cool way yeah all these as we're saying these i just keep realizing like hey, i learned about that from debbie oh, i learned about that one too oh that one too <laughs> <laughs> yay well yeah <laughs> so debbie well, then maybe, you have, so you have one yeah, more <laughs> i do you may you might know about this one um maybe not it's called The Water Walker. It was written and illustrated by Joanne Robertson. She's Ojibwe. It came out in 2017 from Second Story Press. And uh, this book, The Water Walker, is about a woman named Josephine Mandamin. She um, was an Ojibwe grandmother. She's passed away now. Who started walking around the Great Lakes to bring attention to the need to protect the water. So um, her walks inspired other people to go with her on those walks. And you see that planning. Um, in the illustrations in a present day kitchen where everybody's gathered around the table and and they're planning how they're going to go about doing these walks and how um, the uh, story told from the point of view of a little girl talking about her grandmother how they how they bring more attention to the importance of water so um, it's an activism story and it fits very well with our final chapter about um, uh Water is Life, and Chapter 10 about activism and what activism can do for everybody. Well, thank you both so, so much for all that you brought to this conversation. Um, and I just, <laughs> I just am smiling because I can't wait to hear about um, the educators that you're connecting with or that connect with you through this book. Um, I can't wait for more book recommendations now from each of you. Um, Jean, I'm so glad that, that we made this connection. I look forward to to being connected with you in the future and to uh, hopefully hearing lots and lots of stories of educators that have brought these books into their classrooms and children that have brought these books into their homes. What do you think, Karina? Same thing? Yes, same thing. Very excited about this book being out in the world. Hey, I'm going to plug a, a group of teen readers. Of Glades is the handle they use on Twitter, and they reviewed our book, and they did it as a group review. These are four teenagers who are Seminole and Miccosukee. They're down in Florida, and they um, blogged it as they read it. So if you go to their blog, um, Indigo's Bookshelf, they talk about the things that were especially important to them and because they're such careful readers and thoughtful they said you know what you guys left out anything about children um, and teens who are two-spirit and they're right they're that right is awesome we will make sure that we link to that blog post and and also to the the twitter account because um i get a lot of of wonderful interaction and and knowledge from of glades that that's a great shout out debbie thank you for that 
And thank you both, Gene and Debbie, for joining us on Kidlet these days. We, we appreciate the time you set aside to spend with us today. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Enjoyed it. As always, we would love your feedback on this podcast and always appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts. When you do that, you also help other people find us. You can find me, Karina Yan Glazer, on Twitter at Karina Yan Glazer and on Instagram at Karina is reading and writing. And you can find me, Matthew Winner, on Twitter at Matthew Winner. All of our show notes are available at bookriot.com slash listen. Find episode 13 of Kidlet these days and you will find links to everything mentioned as well as to all of the books mentioned. If you have a story idea, reach out to us on social media using hashtag Kidlet these days or email us at Kidlet these days at bookriot.com. We love your mail and we would love to hear what you're thinking about and what you'd like to see next on the show. May your coming days be storied, and may the good stories keep on coming.